Thank you very much. It's great to be here, and uh, I think you'll see if there's some interesting resonances between what I'm going to say about the first day painting on Guara at Altamira and Amy's uh, wonderful talk. The Japanese artist on Kawara, born in 1933 in Tokyo, resident in New York uh, City since 1965, and now 81, is well known for his Today series, his so-called date paintings, all liquitex on canvas. Each notates the day, month, and year in which it was painted, using the language and orthography of the country in which it was painted, more than 100 cities to date. When not exhibited, it's boxed in a carton <laughs> containing a local news clip from that day. So for example, for 20 July 1969, man walks on moon. Kawara doesn't make date paintings every day, but all date paintings must be finished on the day they're started or they're destroyed. Their formats are simple. Eight possible sizes, monochrome backgrounds, white sans-serif lettering, hand-painted, with extreme precision, seemingly mechanical. Complementary series of works, I'm sure many of you know them, include I Am Still Alive, telegrams sent by Kawara with that message to friends around the world, I Got Up, postcards uh, such as you see here, and One Million Years Past and Future, first made in 1969. At Kawara's exhibition at DIA in 1993, on audio, a visitor could hear one million years future, the dates of one million years read in sequence, and inspect the printed one million years past along with some date paintings. A continuous reading in Trafalgar Square, some of you may have been there in 2004, took seven days and seven nights, uh, almost one date per second. The first date painting was made on January 4th, 1966. And the latest recorded one, there may be more, uh, on December 3, 2012, as number 6,933 in the series. But first is a relative date. It's not yet a time, a duration that's divisible, that can be factored into any dates using any kind of chronometer, the clocks used by Kawara for I Got Up, for example, or to track the day to midnight of making a date painting, or sunsets or heartbeats. And it's not a history, which needs at least two dates. But Kawara knows all this. All paintings are date paintings, but they can belong to time in ways that confound mere dating, indeed precede it. Insofar as they confer sequence and transformation on themselves, they constitute the very possibility of a dated painting, and perhaps need no actual dates to be temporally intelligible. There are many such paintings in the history of art. In the autumn of 1963, Kawara visited the prehistoric decorated cave of Altamira, Altamira in Santander, Spain. He was on his way from Paris to Toledo. In 1963, Altamira had long been understood to contain pictures that could be dated to the Upper Paleolithic period, at least 15,000 years ago. In many accounts of Altamira, pride of place has been given to the so-called polychrome chamber, actually its ceiling. It's decorated with painted reliefs <coughs> depicting bison, deer, horses, and perhaps other creatures such as boar, and with painted signs or abstract marks as they're sometimes described. In another part of the chamber, engravings of animals 
as well as so-called humanoid creatures were made. Photograph of the engraving, a layer over, uh, just so you can get a better feel for what might be seen in the incisions there. Finally, all the surfaces have natural stains, fissures, and humps that sometimes look like they could be man-made, some of which were incorporated into the man-made configurations. As noted, the images in Ultramero were made about 15,000 years ago at the latest. Still, they struck 19th and 20th century beholders as modern, fresh, and recent. The cave had been opened in 1879 by the landowner, who took it to be a creation of the Ice Age. But many commentators couldn't accept that ostensibly primitive artists could have produced pictures of such astonishing expressiveness. Exactly who had produced them wasn't clear, and the debate was settled within archaeology in the early 1900s for a prehistoric date. Nonetheless, the pervasive feeling that in some sense the images in Altamira are beyond history never entirely disappeared. Picasso is supposed to have said that not one of us could paint like that. After Altamira, all is decadence. It seems we can attribute the phrase beyond history to Kawara, though the thought wasn't unique to him. In Jonathan Watkins's 2002 survey of Kawara's career, it's quoted as a statement by the artist about his visit to Altamira. Indeed, Kawara also said that Altamira is beyond language, making a direct appeal to beholders despite its antiquity. Kawara had been dissatisfied with the work he'd been doing in Japan and Mexico City before his relocation to New York in 1962 and to Paris the following year. And he'd set out for Toledo to reinvigorate himself. Its cultural syncretisms reminded him of his own mixed Shinto, Buddhist, and Christian heritages. After his visit to Altamira, he said, he began to feel the possibility of art again. An entire approach to art, he said, had opened up. On returning in 1963 from Spain to Paris, where he remained for 12 months, and then after going back to New York in 1964, he made hundreds of drawings that responded, as he saw it, to Altamira. 198 of these were grouped by him as the series now known as Paris-New York drawings. There's just a handful. We'll be seeing a lot more of them, but just to give you a bit of a flavor. Critics have recognized these drawings as a turning point, abandoning the kinds of modes of pictorial organization Kawara had developed in Japan a decade earlier. And indeed, they seem to contain the seeds of works that he would make later, though he couldn't have known this, I suppose, fully at the time. There are unresolved questions about grouping, sequence, and series in the Paris and New York drawings. Made in pencil on different kinds of drawing paper, distinguished by color and by size, they were numbered in the lower right corner, from 1 to 188, and followed by 10 unnumbered drawings. The sheets were torn out of spiral-bound pads, leaving ragged perforations at the top, the right, or the left edges, a uniquely identifying code, though different from a numbering. The series as such, and as a whole, was defined, or at least finalized, by Kawara's decision to box them in a cardboard container. It's 39 by 48 centimeters high and wide, and seven centimeters deep. A cardboard container that he made specially for them but only when he knew which drawings of what size he wanted to include. It was labeled, as you see, 1964 Paris, New York, in red for the date, 
and black for the places, the only two colors used uh, famously at Altamira. With the exception of the first drawing and the last, in the box, each drawing lies both on top of a drawing or on top of some definite number of drawings, though that number isn't visible in advance, and underneath a drawing, some definite number of drawings. In light of Kawara's leisure practices, one might be tempted to suppose that each drawing was made on a different day. But there's no visible reason why several of them couldn't have been made in one sitting, and why several days could not have gone by when no drawings were made. Moreover, the numbering could have been done retroactively. Indeed, regardless of any numbered and stratigraphic orders, some drawings seem to be out of order visually, cycling back formally to earlier drawings or prefiguring later ones. I'm making heavy weather of grouping uh, sequence and series in the Paris State, the Paris New York drawings. I could say a lot more about that, not only because of tensions between the fixed order of group, sequence, and series on the one hand, including regular numbering and material layering, and its indeterminacy and multiplicity on the other. I also take this open closed structure, closed open structure, and its overall matrix to represent an expression, an outcome, of the artist's visit to Altamira. Though this link has explicitly been made by Kawara himself, he didn't give it much explication, and critics haven't really followed it up. But let me try. Ever since the discovery of the polychrome chamber, documentarians have tried to make representations of the composition. I use that term, composition, advisedly. It was adopted by the art historian who gave the most sustained identification of the visual parameters of iconographic structure in the ceiling. Max Raphael's treatment of what he called the magic battle at Altamira, published in 1945, was widely read, not least because he associated the magic battle on the ceiling, supposedly a conflict between prehistoric clans symbolized by great animals, and the combatants in the Second World War, who glorified themselves in mythic insignia. Nachleben, trans-historical recurrence of magical thinking, the continuous centrifugal temporal proliferation of mythical thought. At any rate, Raphael's recognition of a spatio-temporal logic in the paintings, though a logic different from later arts, was widely endorsed. Two-dimensional copies, such as the ones you see here, often cannot capture effects of texture, volume, and shadow. Using spotlights and special lenses, photography at Altamira has been staged to draw attention to natural visual illusions in situ, to the virtual volume of individual figures, to their fluctuating perspectival configurations, to the way sunlight can animate them. It's worth noting that the painted ceiling is not so far away from the entrance to the cave, and it's the end of day, the sunlight actually washes across the ceiling. Um, and this photograph by Randy White on the right is meant to try to replicate that effect. As they've usually been published, many photos situate the beholder as if he or she is standing far back enough from or below the ceiling to keep the entire composition in view. The polychrome chamber is almost 20 meters from entrance, which is on the right in this photograph, to the back wall, which is on the left in this photograph. 
And these panoramas, photographic panoramas, construct a ceiling envisioned to be like Michelangelo's fresco for the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, or something to that effect. But no such encompassing view is now possible in situ. In places, the floor of the polychrome chamber is only a couple of meters at most from the ceiling. Even if one lies out flat in the middle of the chamber, one can only clearly resolve the virtual beings directly overhead. Uh, so for example, in the middle, the large uh, detached horse's head, get my pointer, right in there, um, the standing bison overmarked with long lines, Let's see if you can see him, it's right in here, um, and the pair of counterposed bison lying below. And all other figures would be extending to your left or right in an increasingly inchoate visual field. And obviously from any location, one cannot see around the real masses of relief. Of course, one moves around in the chamber. Uh, there's the bison that overmarked line, sorry. Uh, one moves around in the chamber, taking up new orientations as needed. On entering, we seem to be led in by the so-called leaping boar, almost kind of avatar figure, who seems to spring ahead toward a headless bison and to be confronted head-on by a bison. Moving deeper into the chamber, a transversal line of um, three bison demands our reorientation. Whereas the right-hand bison stands upright vis-a-vis -vis one's line of advance, the central and the left-hand bison are upside down, may be depicted as rolling, uh, enhanced by the way in which the sunlight, as I've already mentioned, moving west to east, would spread across the masses of these uh, stone reliefs. A narrative, perhaps, of, un of entrance, confrontation, attack, and retreat, Raphael's magic battle. This is the photograph that I believe on Kawara himself selected to illustrate the ceiling for inclusion in the Phaidon uh, survey book on his work. I'm not having been able to confirm that, but it makes sense. At this point, when one's about in here, fairly far into the chamber, one's motivated to turn around 180 degrees, and now the bison nearest the entrance will be facing away, and we will be confronting the boar, leaping back at them and at us, and, and so on. It would take a full book, a whole book, like Raphael's, to unravel the interactions of sightline on the one hand and of composition and narrative on the other. In moving around in the chamber, we can occupy many coordinates and postures. At each, the color, shape, and volume and the apparent actions of the virtual creatures that resolve there are reorganized spatially. In exploring the chamber for the first time or any time, one must perforce go deeper into it and pass through groups, sequences, and series of interconverting images, pro and retrospectively telling an indefinite range of reversible and inversible stories, a vast image game. At any point in these passages, for example, crouching beneath um, a bison conformed in a natural boss in the ceiling, we are aware in both tactile and uh, visual ways of material stratigraphy in the image itself, of what's usually called by the prehistorians superimposition, the layering of figures on top of one another in the same place. At Altamira, this includes not only superimposition in the sense meant by archaeologists, 
the later placing of a finished figure on top of an earlier figure. It also includes the fluctuating visibility of sequences of marking as such, superimposition as palimpsest, whether it organizes a single complete figure produced as visible superimposed layers, just to give you a sense of the complexity of the incision activity that's going on here, this little humanoid, you can just sort of make him out here. But there's, as you can see, a variety of other things going on there. Uh, whether we're dealing with discrete figures, merged figures, compound, uh, all, all those possibilities. Most important, the material stratigraphy of marking has phenomenal presence, especially given the close quarters at which the surfaces had to be experienced. Indeed, in parts of the cave, the mere tactile and visual presence of marking in superimposition is more palpable than resolutions of pictures and signs, of compositions and narratives. In particular, one feels the corporeal and action of incising, even if the incisions aren't always discriminable from natural fissuring of the surfaces. This is uh, the second photograph that I believe Kawara chose to illustrate uh, his work in Watkins's volume. In the polychrome chamber, incisions not only separate pictures from ground, including the natural forms that suggest <coughs> virtual beings, they also support the virtual presences, the beings that virtualize in the space of the cave, built up by applying pigment to create virtual volume. In the Paris New York drawings, we can follow similar emergences. Not surprisingly, they have multiple pathways, even within the sequential order of inspection imposed by the material layering of drawings. For example, some of these are going to be rather faint. These are fresh photographs from the Guggenheim, but the best we can get. Um, for example, the, the first drawing uh, that, sorry, the, series of drawings layered in the box begins with, number one, egg. We could treat egg as the first drawing in the series. It, it was number one, labeled number one. But it could equally be taken as a pregnant title page of a sort, giving the name of the series of drawings contained below it. It seems to be the most different from all other drawings in the box, as we discover, and most similar to works on paper made by the artist just before the series such as Nothing, Something, Everything of 1963, and to the paintings he made immediately after, such as Title and Location of 1965. Its primary position in the box, then, is the most open-ended. The set of drawings as a visible series really begins with number two and its followers, which set out to explore marked surfaces and the virtual presence of incision its directions, contours, and depths, translated at uh, drawing number nine into, uh, or rotated, one might say, uh, some of, maybe perhaps like the movement uh, Amy described earlier, uh, kind of turning into, virtualizing itself as three-dimensional geometric form, as it were a kind of object on the floor, uh, or the wall, or the ceiling, a strand that surfaces throughout the series. Suitable for forensic publication in prehistory, these drawings could serve as analysis of the surfaces of Altamira and other caves, of natural concretions and manufactured marks, 
of meandering incisions in straight lines, of open fields and bounded shapes, of visible planes and virtual volumes, of convexity and concavity, of depicted object and virtual presence. At number 125, a drawing of something like a typewriter keyboard, and in the so-called on-language drawings that follow, here's one of those, another, numbers, letters, Japanese characters, and other signs seem to function partly as translations of the surfaces, or as it were labeling particular marks and figures with words and phrases in Japanese. Still, there are no ready ostensive or denotational links between the marks and the writing, which doesn't obviously name what one might take the marks to trace or to depict if one does so in the first place. And the tiny, finely drawn Japanese characters could be optically indistinguishable from little seams and fissures, whether natural or not, especially for someone who doesn't read Japanese. Perhaps then they are merely particular involutions of incision, even of surface folds, that have somehow happened to take the seemingly readable forms of Japanese characters, like meandering lines left in the sand by a retreating wave that one takes to write something in a readable script. Overall, however, an iconography does emerge in groups of drawings, albeit not always in uninterrupted sequence. A lexicon of particular shapes, patterns, and volumes that are repeated, transformed, and remixed. Of course, these groups only become fully apparent retroactively as later, deeper summations of what we've already seen. Sometimes the patterns, most of them we've seen, are abstract, and sometimes they're pictorial, apparently depicting things such as boxes and rods and parts of doors and furniture. Indeed, one can take many drawings simply to depict a naturally textured and deliberately marked wall. Whether or not the marks add up to the recognizable shapes of things, many drawings are pictorial in two other ways. First, they spatialize the field constituted by the sheet of paper, constituted as a virtual pictorial space. I'm tempted now to say a box, space box. You'll have already noticed this was often done by drawing lines, or a smudge, right above the bottom edge of the sheet. In turn, this is usually lightly elaborated with pseudo-perspectival orthogonals, establishing the virtual space of a room, of a floor joining a wall at right angles, though it's easy to rotate the space to virtualize a wall joining a ceiling. And in principle, many junctions of the overall space can be virtualized depending on the ways in which we orient the sheet. In turn, and second, above the line of floor and wall, a rectangle has often been situated, as it were a pattern or an object on the wall or a window in it. In many cases, then, we seem to be looking at a picture of an image, of an artwork <coughs> or a picture, a three-dimensionalized form hovering in a chamber of virtual space. The frame of this depicted image emerges for investigation early on in the series at number 16, a multicolored set of bars recalling the edges of an airmail envelope, which actually appears in an earlier drawing. It's then translated into three-dimensional elements on the wall or in the space of the room. Like the bison at Altamira, fully coherent in any orientation, 
but spatializing color and volume in a unique way in each orientation. Number 20 seems to be translated at number 21 into an exploration of the surface of the depicted image, not only as striated, textured, mottled, stained, and fractured as naturally formed. The surface can also be crisscrossed by straight and curving lines that seem to be drawn on it, setting up areas, forms, and parts of emergent figures, grids, and maps. Indeed, the Paris New York drawings seem to envision, and I'm quoting Watkins, proposed settings for unrealized works of art, what the drawings depict. And it's striking that many of these artworks and settings had not yet been realized in 1964, though as art historians have noted, objects and assemblages quite like them would soon be produced by other Japanese, American, and European artists. But I'm not going to pursue that art historical matter here. Such artworks were not produced by Kawara himself, even though he tried to do so, as if construing the Paris New York drawings as working drawings. In his New York studio, we're told, <coughs> Kawara tried to transpose into sculpture the ideas that he had developed in his countless drawings. That's Watkins, I'm quoting. But these transpositions, if they were realized, were not preserved, and Kawara abandoned the effort. Indeed, he said, maybe the beginning of his art, that, quote, the profusion of all the potentially realizable possibilities convinced me that I needed to restrict myself radically to do something and to do it over a long period of time, a period that at the time he actually projected 20 years into the future. As Kawar realized then, the work of art resides not so much, or not only, in the somethings envisioned by the drawings in the box. Rather, it resides in the spatio-temporal dilation of the box itself. Regardless of the composition of each drawing made in Paris and New York in 1964, 1964 Paris, New York is a date painting, the putative first of which, really a second, was lettered as supposedly having been painted on January 4th, 1966, inaugurating Kawara's Today series, or at least retrospectively. The first of these paintings to be boxed, also a second, was placed in a container labeled as having been made, perhaps retrospectively, for a date painting within it that's inscribed February 3, 1967. Regardless, the boxes that began to be made to contain each date painting visibly seem to have been constructed in the very same way and from the same materials as the box that is Paris, New York, 1964 Paris, New York. Indeed, all date paintings are box-like artifacts made from canvas stretched on frames, always five centimeters deep. They visibly allow for the stratigraphy that could make them up. Indefinite in duration, insofar as one can readily box a million years of dates. In, 1960, no, sorry, in 1997, when Paris, New York was photographed for exhibition in Switzerland, it was 33 years old. Still, it was 67 years younger than the span of a full century, namely 1901 to 2000, that had been laid out in the depicted calendar of 100 years set inside it. I know this is hard to see, but here's the years, registers, with the dates in those little panels. 
Well, actually, the calendar of 100 years only goes from 1920 through 2004, 85 years. Indeed, no date at all appears. It's right there. I know it's hard to see, especially with my jumping pointer. No date at all appears in the register on the calendar that Kawara laid out in the box between 1965 and 1966. No stated dated time at all, though it could well have been the time, the very month and day, at which Kawara constructed the depicted calendar, had projected a picture of the calendar on the wall to be able to be dated. If so, the virtual date of the box, 1964 Paris, New York, could be <laughs> 1965, some month, days, hours, or minutes, before the drawing of the line constructed as the top of the panel labeled 1966, including the possibility that nothing belongs in the panel 1965. All of the drawings, as the box says, having been made in 1964, though not likely in 1901. Maybe because of this temporal involution, it's going to be very hard to see, but to squint and you might make this out in the center there, four inward-pointing arrows set in the crossbars, the kind of X, in the empty panel between 1964 and 1960, between 65 and 66, suggests a three-dimensional fold of vortex. In it, time, past time, this time, next time, the time after, all time, lies materially and unfolds above and below the calendar in the box not sequentially on one plane in the two-dimensional register of year dates that it inscribes in the drawing's depiction of a calendar. At the time, this hieroglyph likely had no correlation with digital operations, such as icons found on a present-day computer keyboard. Rather, it may have inherited some of the valences of analog spatial compasses for natural orientation on the surfaces of the planet at any given place and time. The no time, notated in, in number 177, might be found not only before, that is, in front and on top of, number 177 on 176, titled The Old Man and the Sea by Hemingway, which seemingly depicts the first 85 numbered pages of that book, though out of paginated order. The unfixed time might also be found after that is behind and below number 177 on number 178. That is, the drawing titled Sundays of 100 Years from 1901 through 1987, 86 years, with another time gap, undated period, an empty rectangle, now registered between 1950 and 1951. I won't go on with this. I hope you get the point. The real temporal gap between superimposed marks at Altamira will never be known. It could be thousands of years on the one hand, hours, minutes, or seconds on the other hand. Indeed, the actual date of many marks made at Altamira will never be known. The most we can see is that they must be older or younger than marks that lie above them or below them. Of a date painting by Kawara, maybe better <coughs> called a day's painting, we do know that it's always less than 24 hours old as hatched. As I noted, if it isn't finished by midnight on the day it started, it's destroyed. And we think we know the date, the day, month, and year of that making. But we can't know from this 
that the painting is always less than 24 hours older or younger than any date paintings immediately preceding and following it. If these were destroyed because they were not finished by midnight on the day, then we don't know that the painting in question was not started more than 24 hours earlier or later than they were. Did you get that? <laughs> Recursive uh, temporality. All we can know, uh, knowledge that's a hall of mirrors, as my phrasing, I hope, suggested, knowledge that's a hall of mirrors, a uh, house of cards, is that by some hours, minutes, or seconds, or sunsets, or heartbeats, the date painting is at some visible point always younger, and at the same or another point always older than itself, as it was in the past, and as it will be in the future. Despite the calendrical, numerical, digital, arithmetical, computational, seriational, statistical, evidentiary, documentary, and historical inventions of human beings since the Ice Age, this is prehistoric knowledge. Awareness of pure historicity, of time-factored life, and its unknowable timeliness, and therefore, in the end, of death. A date painting is a death openly acknowledged, even when it imagines itself at first as endless. Before such images were made in and as one's day of painting, no creature could have possibly imagined such an end, could have said, I am still alive. Thank you very much.